This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Following those explosive pictures of Justin Trudeau in blackface, we'll look at the history behind this harmful practice and what's next for Canadians looking for medical assistance in dying now that parts of the law have been declared unconstitutional. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Legendary music icon Andy Kim, a friend to Zoomer Radio, is among the latest inductees to the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. He'll be inducted along with the late Bobby Curtola, Chilliwack, and the Cowboy Junkies. Originally from Montreal, Andy Kim was the singer-songwriter behind a number of pop rock hits in the 60s and 70s, including that one, Rock Me Gently, and Baby I Love You. Bobby Curtola was also a friend to Zoomer Radio and got his start as a teen idol in Port Arthur, Ontario in the early 60s. Bobby Curtola died in 2016. The Canadian Music Hall of Fame induction ceremony will take place in Calgary on October 27th. Norman Lear has become the oldest Emmy Award winner ever, taking the prize for Outstanding Variety Special Live. The 97-year-old Hollywood legendary TV writer and producer already had four of the awards under his belt before this latest. He created such beloved classics like All in the Family, The Jeffersons, and Maud. But he wasn't the only senior to win an Emmy this week. 93-year-old Sir David Attenborough won for Outstanding Narrator. As long as I can walk out and greet the audience and the contestants and run the game, I'm happy. Alex Trebek has had a setback in his treatment for stage 4 pancreatic cancer. The Jeopardy host announced that doctors have ordered him to undergo another round of chemotherapy after he experienced rapid weight loss and his tumor markers went, in his words, sky high. Back in May, the 79-year-old Sudbury native reported that he was near remission, but he has since suffered pain, fatigue, and depression. Music legend Sirrod Stewart says he's been successfully treated for prostate cancer. The 74-year-old was given the all-clear in July after being diagnosed during a routine check back in 2016. Stewart says his cancer was caught early, and so he's encouraging other men to get tested regularly. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. What I did uh, hurt them. Uh, hurt people uh, who shouldn't have to face intolerance and discrimination because of their identity. This is something uh, that uh, I deeply, deeply regret. 
That's liberal leader Justin Trudeau apologizing after photos and videos of him in blackface and brownface rocked the election campaign. They've made headlines around the world and we have all heard extensive discussions about what the impact will be. But there's a long and hurtful history to the practice of donning black and brown makeup to pose as characters of color. And I sat down with Zoomer magazine editor-in-chief Suzanne Boyd to talk about it. It goes back to a lot of things, including slavery, America's original sin. It was a way of appropriating and demeaning and dehumanizing black people. It trafficked in horrible, horrible stereotypes. It amplified the worst stereotypes that were believed about black people in America. And sadly, it was also quite common in Canada. So these started as minstrel shows. Yes, it was a popular form of entertainment. And according to this um, professor, scholar who's worked on this called Cheryl Thompson, um, she said they started appearing in Canada in 1850s. So American troops would come up and perform in Western Central and Eastern Canada. But there were also Canadian troops like born and made in Canada, blackface troops who also performed in Canada in the 1800s as well. There's a guy here named Thomas Dartmouth Rice known as the, quote, father of minstrelsy. And he developed the first popularly known blackface character called Jim Crow. Yeah. So when you talk about things happening in the States today, when this whole new conversation about reparations, talking about representation in Hollywood and how um, people of color, specifically black people in this case, are represented, you understand that it's just this deep and it's interwoven into how America became America. By 1845, there was a whole industry around this. Mm-hmm. Music, mm-hmm. makeup. I don't want to call it makeup. And I think that was part of one of the when Trudeau made his first yes. apology and he said, well, I use makeup. And by the next day, he was saying, let's just call yeah. it blackface what it is. And I think that's part of the diminishing of it. And when these blackface brouhaha blew up earlier this year in the States, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, it came to light he was doing blackface as Michael Jackson. And one of the questions posed to him in his really bizarro press conference was, this takes a really long time to put on and put off. It's like work intensive. It's messy. It gets all over you. So so what would be the compulsion to to do this as fun, to put on that sort of coverage that, I guess, stays on all night while you're at a party? So that's quite work intensive. And then to get it off. I want to get into Hollywood. So we had Al Jolson, who mm-hmm. was the most popular mm-hmm. comic of his time, put on blackface and saying, mm-hmm. Mammy. Mm-hmm. He did it a lot. And then reading the list of actors who donned blackface, Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney, Bing Crosby. As I said, it was embedded in the culture and was considered part of their entertainment complex. It was a cult to them. It was a, a thing like the ballet. There was blackface min- minstrelly. It was it was a form of entertainment. As I said, again, American is apple pie. And you look back at those films and, you know, the stock characters and, you know, the, the way um, black characters were treated and marginalized and stereotyped. But there was also on top of that, just when there were actual black actors doing black parts or hiring, you know, Caucasian actors to do black or Asian parts, because there's also that whole stream. There was also just the blackface as well. It kind of boggles the mind. 
Well, you know, it's as I said, it's embedded in the culture. You know, songs that you'd sing like as school children, like one was Oh Susanna, that people would sing to me all the time. And it's actually about people being sold into families, being separated and sold into slavery. And, you know, it's it's so embedded. You don't really understand how embedded it is until you really start pulling it apart and thinking about it. And I think one of the um, things about the Trudeau situation was just that this was endorsed by educational institutions. Like, these were in school yearbooks. One of the criticisms of Trudeau and that, saying he didn't realize it was offensive then. He was 29 years old, had lived his whole life in the spotlight, so you think, uh, clueless... That's a tough one because you think even in the 90s, there was that brouhaha where, you know, you started seeing blackface come again from comedians as irony. So the the famous one was Ted Danson, where he and Whoopi Goldberg were dating. And obviously she's an African-American woman and they were doing a roast and she convinced him to they cooked up a, a skit where he came out in blackface with her and they were doing a bit and massive outrage but they thought it was ironic and Sarah Silverman has done it you know these shock comics come out and do it and you see it in Hollywood I mean there's a huge tradition of it in the 30s 40s 20s in Hollywood but as recently as I think in the 2000s there was that movie where Robert Downey Jr. did a character and it was blackface in an ironic way so it it goes in and out of entertainment and in the culture. So it was out there that this wasn't a cool thing to do in 2001. But it's the entire, not the, he was the one who did it, but the entire school community and the faculty, the alumni board, everyone involved was fine with it because they promoted the picture the next year in a newsletter. Jagmeet Singh, the NDP Mm -hmm. leader, who has been praised for his reaction to this, Mm -hmm. and obviously he's a person of color, Mm -hmm. he said it's a teaching moment. So Mm -hmm. from your point of view, what is the teaching moment that we should all take from this? I think the opportunity is to look at embedded institutionalized racism. And I think that's what was good about the apology was that Trudeau spoke about you know, looking at the bigger picture, looking at what we can do as a society, looking at what's wrong and what can be done going forward. I think it's a wake-up call. Suzanne Boyd, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Libby. That was Zoomer Magazine Editor-in-Chief Suzanne Boyd talking about the history of minstrelsy and blackface. Montrealers with degenerative diseases will now have access to medical assistance in dying following a Quebec Superior Court decision that declared parts of both the federal and provincial laws unconstitutional. Nicole Gladieux suffers from post-polio syndrome and Jean Truchon has cerebral palsy. They went to court after their applications for MAID were denied because their deaths were not imminent or foreseeable to use the language of the law. I talked to Corey Ruff from the organization Dying with Dignity about what this means for all Canadians. In the judge's decision, uh, she ruled that this particular rule violates two sections of the Charter, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person outlined in Section 7, and the plaintiff's uh, equality rights outlined in Section 15. What happens next? 
Um, we're, we're learning more about the implications of the decision. The, the judge has suspended the decision for six months. In the meantime, um, she's given the plaintiffs a constitutional exemption, allowing them to access assisted, assisted dying if they so choose during that period. The respondents, uh, the federal government and the Quebec government can appeal and have 30 days to do so. Our understanding is, is that if they don't appeal or if the, the decision is allowed to move forward, that it would only apply in Quebec. But uh, we as an organization are calling on the Quebec and federal government to take steps to correct the constitutional problems in the law so people don't have to co- go to court again to assert their rights. Uh, what do you see as the problem with the law? For one thing, it's confusing for people because, you know, we're human, we're mortal. Everyone's death is, is reasonably foreseeable. In the context of the law, there's been a lot of confusion the government said when they passed the law that it doesn't mean a person has to be terminal in the very last uh, weeks or months of life. Um, but clinicians over the last three years, some have struggled to apply criterion because of its vagueness. So we found that in some cases that people with the exact same medical circumstances, if you took two people with the exact same medical circumstances, one might be approved. I'm um, in one part of the country or even even in one part of the same province when another person um, would be denied. Um, and that's a problem. That does not um, that is not good law if, if people don't have um, fair and equal access. And it's also led to um, tragedy and and heartache for families. Um, people who've been unfairly denied for assisted dying, um, some have attempted or died by suicide. Others have stopped eating and drinking, so their natural deaths become reasonably foreseeable. Some people have gone overseas to access assisted dying at, at, say, a private assisted dying clinic in Switzerland. Assisted dying is right here in Canada, and people should not have to go overseas or to attempt any of these, go to any of these measures to to access their, their right to a peaceful death. Does this apply mostly to people with neurodegenerative diseases like ALS? That is, that is a good question. We still have to learn more. Certainly the, the, the plaintiffs in this case, they have degenerative conditions that have caused them intolerable suffering. They are not terminally ill. That being said, there are people with degenerative conditions such as ALS, such as Huntington's, uh, who have access assisted dying under the current rules. So um, we don't uh, with what we're learning about the law, we don't want to paint with two broad strokes because we don't want to give the impression that, you know, a particular class of people does or does not qualify for assisted dying when, in fact, it really depends on the person's individual circumstances. From your point of view, what has to happen next? The federal government knew um, when it was uh, considering this law in, in 2016, that there were constitutional problems. Um, they chose to ignore um, those problems at the time and go forward with the bill that, that they should have known uh, would not pass constitutional muster. So um, it's incumbent on the next government to take steps to, to correct course and to make sure that suffering people like uh, People in the same situation as Monsieur Truchon and Madame Gladys do not have to go to court to assert their rights. Corey Ruff, thanks so much. Thanks, let me take care. That was Corey Ruff of Dying with Dignity. Mm-hmm.
And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. Produced by Christine Ross, Paul Thomas, Faz Kazi, and Justin Eacock. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.